Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip. This episode, Group F, Portugal. Today, we're travelling to Lisbon to talk to Tom Kunda about the Portugal national team, the reigning European champions. Tom is the founder, editor and all-round supremo of the website Portugal.net, which is an English language site that covers all things to do with Portuguese football. Tom was born and grew up in the UK, but he's been based in Lisbon since the mid-1990s and he's a regular in football stadium press boxes, the length and breadth of Portugal. He's also the author of two very good books on Portuguese football, A Journey Through Portuguese Football and The Thirteenth Chapter, which is a very well-received and very well-timed history of the Portuguese national team that was published just after their Euro 2016 success. So Tom is lucky in the sense that he's covered the most successful period in the history of the Portuguese national team. But he's also been around long enough to provide some perspective on the times when Portugal weren't as successful as they are now. But there's no doubting that the current side has a lot of exciting talent, but they're a very different proposition to the pragmatic team that carried off the trophy in Paris in 2016. So there's a lot to discuss with Tom. Grab a plate of bacalao and maybe a cheeky glass of vino verde as we find out all about Portugal with Tom Kudan. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a golden era for Portuguese football at the moment, isn't it? Winning the reigning European champions, winning Euro 2016. First ever international triumph. Um, followed by, uh, in 2019, the inaugural UEFA Nations League. Is there a simple explanation for why it's happening? Lots of talented players, you know, the right coach with the right tactics. Yeah, good question. I, you know, I have to agree with you. Absolutely no doubt it is the golden era of Portuguese football for the national team. Uh, people kind of tend to forget that Portugal, until the turn of the century, they were kind of a almost a minnow, you could say, uh, in terms of international football. In b- Before 2000, in, I think there have been 26 World Cups and Euros. Portugal had only qualified for four. 
<laughs> you know, so that shows you, uh, you know, there just weren't a player at all in the international scene. And since 2000, they've qualified for every single one, uh, got to the semis or better uh, in five uh, Euros or, and World Cups. And, and like you say, you know, just culminated in this uh, their first uh, ever trophy in 2016 and then followed that up with the, with the Nations League. So there's no doubt about it. This is the golden era for Portuguese football. Why has that happened? Yeah, uh, good question, really. I think uh, really, the, you know, Portuguese football has always had very talented players, uh, even right going back to that, to that phase, you know, where they weren't really a force, internationally speaking. But the problem with Portuguese football, certainly for the national team, has always been the organisation. It's always been really quite chaotic. And, uh, you know, some people would even go as far as to say almost non-existence. The, the organisation, some of the stories you hear about, uh, you know, how amateur it was, uh, in 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 the past century are quite amazing, but uh, that's been sorted out. The FPF, you know, or the Portuguese FA, have really got their act together, and it's really professionally run, a really well uh, organised system now. Right, and uh, I mean, even from building the uh, FPF, the headquarters, which uh, only was inaugurated maybe about five years ago, you know, really kind of state of the art complex just outside Lisbon. And uh, all of that has, has definitely helped, you know, the, the national team, that the preparations are really first class. And, uh, and, and, and this, you know, the talent, the kind of talent conveyor belt of Portuguese football has just continued. Uh, but now I think the, the whole organisation around the national team is being able to nurture that talent and, and get the very best out of it. And I suppose one other big factor we, we can't ignore is that you know, a lot of these big Portuguese players, they go abroad and they're playing for some of the biggest clubs in the world. Yeah. And this, this did happen in the past, but it happened in kind of, you know, drips and drabs. You had one player here, one player there. But, you know, now you just look at it, you, you know, uh, Manchester City, Manchester uh, United, Real Madrid, uh, you know, Real Madrid. Until recently, Juventus, uh, Atletico Madrid, you know, you've got a lot of the biggest clubs all around the world. And they've all got one, two or three Portuguese players. And so, you know, that obviously does really help the national team. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary um, spread of talent around Europe, isn't it? I'm looking at the first team of Portugal. You've got Cristiano Ronaldo at Juventus. You've got Bruno Fernandes at Man United. Bernardo Silva, Ruben Diaz, Yacangelo at Man City. Diogo Jota at Liverpool. Yao Felix at Atletico. Danilo is now at PSG, uh, having gone alone there this season. Rafa Guerrero at, at Dortmund. And that's before you even get to the, the sort of guys uh, rocking up at Wolves. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and others spread around you. That's an incredible um, array of talent and playing you know, for clubs who are going to be in, in the... In the you know, the, the final stages of the Champions League and expect to be in the, you know, the final knockout stages of the Champions League. So is there excitement in Portugal about this talent or is there a, is there a bit of concern about how do, you, how do you fit all this talent into one team and, and, and create a winning team? Yeah, well, yeah, excitement without a doubt, absolutely. You know, like we just discussed, you know, Portugal's results recently have been very uh, encouraging. But uh, you could argue that the talent available to them now is, is far greater than in 2016 when they won the European Championship. And that's an interesting question you ask about, uh, you know, a possible problem of how do you fit all these players together? 
especially the you know from the attacking side uh you know and it has been a bit of a conundrum i wouldn't really call it a problem i'd say it's a conundrum for fernando santos uh you know we had just before christmas in the nations league we had that front fall really of uh Cristiano Ronaldo, João Félix, uh, Bernardo Silva, and Diogo Jota, and they were all absolutely firing for their clubs. And so the question was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, how do you fit them all in a team? And it usually ended up with one of them on the bench. And whoever was put on the bench, that obviously, you know, created a, a bit of a stir and lots of opinions saying it was the wrong option. So, uh, yeah, it's the, you know, it's the old story, isn't it, the, of just saying yeah it's a problem it's the it's it's a good problem to have uh and so you know from that point of view i think uh you know you know excitement i would say is the is the overriding sentiment uh in terms of yeah what it's interesting what you're saying you know you just listed all the all the players there at these you know top clubs really in the world and uh i i always remember talking to uh rui costa maybe about about 10 years or so ago and asking him about the golden generation and how that uh, you know the original golden generation which was kind of him and Luis Figo that generation was the first generation of real top Portuguese players and a few of them went abroad and also players like Sergio Conceição, uh, Fernando Couto, uh, Vitor Bahia and uh, and I always remember one thing he said which is really interesting was it kind of made Portuguese players, at least those players, lose a sense of uh, inferiority mm. because when you're playing in these clubs and you're training, you know, with some of the best players of the world every week, you're coming up against, you know, other, you know, in the top leagues against top players all around the world. You, you, you kind of realise that's where you belong, and uh, you know, you belong in that company. And so I think that's definitely something which has happened to Portugal, to Portuguese football, and to the Portuguese national team. Now, uh, I think without a doubt, Portugal come up against any team in the world, literally any team in the world, and they believe that they are, you know, they can give them a game and they can beat them. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much been uh, borne out in results. And, and, you, and you mentioned that, you know, not being fearful of any teams, but in the qualifiers, um, you know, they actually, they actually qualified for Euro 2020 as runners-up to Ukraine in that group. Um, with, a, with a tricky start, you know, they drew, they, they were held to goalless draw, weren't they, by Ukraine in Lisbon in the first game, then drew with Serbia. So it was a bit of a struggle, um, that qualifying campaign. Now, they had the Nations League finals in the middle, which was obviously uh, a big success. But then this autumn, um, they lost to France in November in the Nations League, didn't um, qualify for the knockout stages. So has, has that knocked things back a little bit? Is there, has that dampened expectations? I mean, it's probably not a bad thing in a way, is it, that they've, that's happened? But is it, what's, what's the mood like after they, those autumn games? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think it's actually possibly a, a good thing which happened because I think people were getting a little bit perhaps uh, ahead of themselves, a bit over-enthusiastic. I'd probably include myself in, in that category <laughs> because... Uh, First of all, about qualifying, you know, Portugal traditionally, they make a bit of a mess or they make a bit of a meal out of qualifying uh, for, for Euros and World Cups. You know, usually it doesn't matter how strong or weak their team is. Like, like I mentioned to you a while ago, they've qualified for every single tournament since the year 2000. That was a real uh, kind of turning point. But, you know, a lot of times they did struggle in qualification and, uh, you know, quite a few times they only got to the tournaments through the, through the playoff. And uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was slightly disappointing, I 
I think you can agree. I think we can agree. Slightly disappointing Euro 2020 uh, qualifying campaign, uh, where which, like you say, started off you know uh, two poor results really against uh, Serbia and Ukraine, and then they were always playing catch up. Uh, got over the line in the end. Uh, in the Nations League, they started off that tournament uh, really well. You know, they they absolutely smashed Croatia uh, 4-1 at home. And then they went to France, put up, again, really good display, possibly one of their best games of the, of the you know, that, that qualifying uh, stage of the, of the Nations League where, uh, you know, they really matched France. You know, you have to remember world champions start from start to finish and, even arguably had had the best chances in that game to could have actually snatched it near the end. So you know, and this was the time when you know Bruno Fernandes was already tearing up trees at Manchester United. Diogo Jota just moved to Liverpool and had that amazing start. Uh, Joao Felix was uh, you know starting to really fly at Atletico Madrid. So yeah, people were really starting to say you know well what's happening here? You know we're the best team in the world. <laughs> but uh, and so it's quite good I think to, to have a little bit of a reality check uh, with the game uh, the, what proved to be the decisive game uh, against France in the Nations League uh, basically Portugal if, if they drew that game uh, they would have been in quite a good position to, uh, to to go through if they'd won that game it was the home game here in Lisbon if they'd won it they would have qualified for, again for the final four of the Nations League and it was here in Lisbon. I went to see that game, and to be perfectly honest, Portugal were outplayed uh, pretty much from start to finish. You know, France really showed their class, and uh, really they, they only won one nil, but they, they could have really won by by two or three. They were they were vastly superior to Portugal that that night, and I think that, like you say, that could actually be a good thing. You know, that it's uh, you know this this is the finished article. Portugal have great players; they've got great potential. But, but when you're coming up against the very best teams in the world, you know, everything has to be perfect. And Portugal, you know, are not a perfect team. There's been a, a year's delay to the Euros, obviously. And Cristiano Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo will be 36 by the time the finals kick off in June. Um, I mean, any other country would be worried going into a tournament with a 36-year-old captain as their main man. But, but not Portugal. I mean, is he still... Is he still a key figure or is there, is there now a feeling that he's approaching the end of his career and, and that others are, are kind of come through and, and take on his mantle? Yeah, well, kind of logically, didn't you? Or, or biologically, you could even say. It, you, would, you would think that he's coming towards the end of his career, but, you know, his whole career has just been a phenomenon. And I think one of the most phenomenal things about his career in, uh, in recent years is the way he just keeps going, isn't it? And he just, there just doesn't seem to be any drop-off at all in his performance level, you know, or practically no drop-off. Obviously, he's not the same player as he was as, you know, 19 or early 20s at Manchester United and then at Real Madrid where he'd, you know, he'd pick up the ball near the, near the, near the halfway line and just completely, you know, tear at the opposition from there. But uh, he's, he's adapted his game, as everyone knows, you know, he's much more of a penalty box player now, a penalty box striker, but he's taken such good care of himself and he continues to take such good care of himself, uh, you know, physically and, you know, everything really around football, his diet, you know, the fact he doesn't drink and he's, he's absolutely uh, in peak physical condition. 
uh, pretty much the whole time. And even, I think it's quite interesting, I say the last four or five years, you know, he's learned how to uh, modify a little bit his, his hunger for playing every single game. And he has tended to rest now and again, uh, you know, to make sure that when it comes to the business end of the season, you know, he's really in, in, in you know, in tip-top shape for, you know, the decisive games in the Champions League and, uh, and then when the tournament comes around, the big summer tournaments. So, uh, so yeah, you know, absolutely no doubt about it. He is still, he still remains even, you know, we've talked about these tremendous talents Portugal has all over the place, but he is still the main man, absolutely no doubt about it. When we're talking about that conundrum of how to fit, uh, you know, three or four attacking players into the side, uh, Cristiano doesn't come into that equation at all. You know, it's Cristiano plus one or two more. Yeah, yeah. And he'll become, he's going to become the first player uh, to have competed in five different European championships who plays in, in the finals. And he's chasing the Ali Dai's world record of 109 international goals. He's not far behind that. He's after Buffon's uh, cap record of 176. He's not far so it could all, by the summer, he could be uh, breaking all these records. And, and, yet, and, he, and yet he could also go on to the World Cup as well. World Cup, presumably, in 2022 in Qatar is, is another target for him. Yeah, I, I definitely expect him to play those two tournaments without a doubt. And, and, and it's pretty much an inevitability now, isn't it? That he's going to, he's going to get that by record and he's going, to, he's going to beat it. I think it's just seven goals off it now or something. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, no doubts about it. He... Uh, and and that has been a he keeps it's, it's quite amusing because he keeps saying, and uh, you know fair play his his career kind of bears that out that he's not that bothered about personal records you know that he just plays his football and they they just come along but you know there's no doubt about it he he has had his eye on this one uh, there was a during the nations league uh, nations league games uh, in the autumn. Portugal had a friendly against Andorra, which, uh, you know, most people, even even Fernando Santos, the manager himself, said they really, you know, didn't want this game. It was uh, imposed by UEFA. And, you know, with this condensed season and, you know, the pandemic and everything, people saying football is playing too much football. And he, he just basically said, you know, if, if it wasn't for UEFA forcing us to play this game, we wouldn't have. And so that game kicked off with Portugal putting, putting up a B-side second half a few substitutions two or three substitutions some of the the main men come on and who you know who comes on cristiano ronaldo which is a big surprise for everyone really because uh you know it's a nothing game and uh, you know what has he got to prove <laughs> absolutely nothing and so but that that whole game the commentators here in portugal were just talking about you know good chance here for cristiano ronaldo to get another two or three or four goals you know to get nearer the the all-time goal-scoring record, and even the way the team played, you could tell it was actually, you know, I was quite disappointed in some ways because they were kind of funneling the ball towards Ronaldo. It was so obvious <laughs> that the whole ob objective of the exercise was to, you know, to allow Ronaldo to get, to get a few more goals. He only actually scored one more in that game. So, uh, so yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, that, that is, you know, that's a big record, which uh, he's definitely got his eyes on. And, yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if he if he did it in a big tournament? Yeah, you know, in yeah. a successful tournament at the Euros or at the, at the next World Cup, I'd certainly expect him to play these these two next two tournaments without you know without any doubt, barring injury, of course. 
Yeah, and I mean he's he's gone from strength to strength since Euro 2016. But quite a few of those players from that triumph in Paris um, had had sort of post-tournament hangovers, didn't they? The likes of Eder and Renato Sanchez, Andre Silva, Yao Mario. They had you know quite a few of them big transfers after the tournament didn't work out. But some of them have played their way back into contention with the national side. And, and Fernando Santos has also refreshed the squad with, with new talent, hasn't he? Like Yao Felix and Trincao, the, the Barcelona youngster, Diego Jota, we talked about, Ruben Diaz, the, the Man City uh, defender. Um, ha, has there been a conscious decision from Fernando Santos to, to refresh the squad? Or is, it, or is he genuinely picking players on merit? You know, the likes of Renato Sanchez coming back into the squad. Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing which makes Fernando Santos quite... Uh, successful in my opinion and what makes him quite popular also is to be fair he's done that ever since he's taken over as Portugal coach you know he has really picked players on merit uh, certainly and he hasn't been afraid to, to mix things up you know he's he's, he's picked a, a hell of a lot of players I think his his record now is something like uh, he's been Portugal manager since 2014 so that's six years and I think he's approaching 50 players that he's given debuts to. You know, we're not talking about 50 uh, players that he's chosen in that time. 50 players he's given their, their full Portugal debut to. So, you know, he really is a is a, a manager who believes in, you know, changing things, uh, given, you know, looking who's who's playing best, who's in who's in the best form, who's which player is best suited to which particular game. Uh, you know, and, and giving them a giving them a chance, and also dropping players. You know, if they don't, if they're not doing a business, he's not afraid to to drop them. You know, he's he's in the fortunate position, also of course that he, you know, he does have a tremendous pool of players to choose. And it's interesting there what you say about the Euro 2016 squad because uh, we actually uh, published a recent article uh, which looked at the best Portuguese players from the last 30 years. And it was interesting that out of that Euro 2016 squad, uh, I think there was only a couple of players who actually made the cut. Uh, and so it kind of shows you that that squad and that team uh, was a real team effort. There weren't really that many superstars there. And uh, you're absolutely right as well. A few of them have kind of dropped off the radar since then. Uh, but a few of them were expected that it was quite a young team in, in you know in some respects and a few of them were expected to be even better now i remember right at the end of 2016 people saying yeah we've won portugal have won our first major uh trophy and and look at these players you know a lot of them are 20 uh, 21 uh, rafael guerreiro uh, very young in their early 20s well mario uh, renato santos was still a teenager said, you know, this team, look, we've won. And imagine how good these players are going to be in four years' time. But unfortunately, they didn't really, uh, you know, most of the young players didn't really kick on and, uh, you know, improve themselves and make themselves a much stronger player than they were at the time. And a few of them, like you rightly said, actually went backwards. You know, Joao Mario's move to Inter Milan was, was a bit of a disaster, to be honest. He never really established himself, then got then got transferred to Russia or loaned out to Russia. He's now back in Portugal, unknown again. Uh, you know, uh, Renato Sanchez, of course, had a terrible time at Bayern Munich. Couldn't couldn't get a, a look in at all. 
you know, had those loan spells, uh, that, that famously poor loan spell at, at Swansea. Uh, he now is also getting, uh, you know, getting his career back on track. And people forget that he was so young at that tournament. Mm. And 18, he's only 22 now. You know, people kind of think of, some people look at him as a busted flush, but he's really, you know, got his whole career in front of him in, in many respects. And he's one who's definitely come back into the fold. He's really started to flourish again at Lille. And so I think he could certainly come back into the equation. Yeah. Uh, I suppose other big players from that tournament, of course, the hero himself, uh, Ed Ed, uh, don't really think he'll be coming back into, into the picture, to be honest. I think Portugal have just got too many high-quality options playing for top clubs. Uh, so it'd be very uh, unlikely that he, he features in this Euro. Uh, well, Mario, uh, you mentioned there, perhaps he's got a chance, although again, really, really, really tough composition, uh, competition, mm. full places in that midfield squad. But he's starting to, you know, Sporting are, are doing very well here uh, in Portugal. They're actually top of the league at the moment. And, and he's been a major reason for that. He's, you know, he's, he's playing really good football again. So, yeah, it'd be interesting mm. to see maybe uh, one or two will, will get back in there. Yeah. What's, what's the future for Fernando Santos? Because he signed a new contract, hasn't he, until 2024. Um, ir- you know, irrespective of what happens in, in the summer, will he stay on? He'll stay on, presumably, for the 2022 World Cup um, but in Qatar. But do, do people look at Joachim Lowe in Germany and worry that, you know, they've got this guy who's now Portugal's longest-serving coach, um, and that they, do they worry that he might stay outstay his welcome, or is he still is he still very much seen as as the right man? He is. I'd say uh, you know he does have his critics. I think it's it's almost impossible not to have critics, isn't it? When you're a national team manager, everyone's got their own idea of you know, who should be in the team and you know how the team should play. And he does have his critics, especially as I suppose the most uh, frequent criticism you hear of him is that he he is a little bit of a conservative manager, which okay that that style of football uh, you know helped Portugal win or or you know really created the conditions for Portugal to win their first ever trophy, and uh, you know he was a national this feeling that perhaps. Uh, you know, a manager who has got a little bit of a different philosophy about, uh, you know, getting the, the best out of their attacking talents could be uh, could be an option. But I'd say, to be honest, Gavin, if you if you had a survey in Portugal, I'd say certainly probably seventy five percent or over would say that he's the right man. You know, he's, he's certainly earned his right to, uh, you know, to to be in that job because. You know, it's just an, uh, an incredible job. His results, you know, quite apart from bringing that first trophy to, to Portugal. And then, of course, winning the Nations League, bringing a second one straight after. And then his record is, is almost phenomenal, really, uh, in competitive games. I just mentioned a while ago, he's been Portugal coach since 2014. So that's six years. I think competitive defeats, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's four, right. four maybe five. You know, it's just uh, in, even in qualifying games and and in the tournaments himself. You know, it, it's themselves. It's very. He's just got a, an absolutely fantastic record. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd be very surprised if uh, if he doesn't see out really his contract. Uh, you know, unless something absolutely disastrous happens in 
in the euro. Uh, yeah. I'd be very surprised if he, if he doesn't see out his contract. Okay. Okay, it's interesting. I want to take a, talk a little bit about the um, the tactical options open to Fernando Santos, but um, first let's just take a, a quick break. Um, back with Tom now and, and talking a little bit about tactics and, and the, the tactical options open to, to Fernando Santos. Um, at, at Euro 2016, you, you mentioned um, it, was, it wasn't a team with many stars. Um, they, they played a, a 4-4-2 Essentially, before defensive-minded midfielders, didn't they? And then, and two wingers really, Nani and, and Cristiano up front. Um, but there's been a big change since then, really, hasn't there? So many attacking options, and he's now—is it fair to say that, that he's he's playing with an attack-minded four-three-three, sort of really, with Bruno Fernandez in that creative midfield role? Um, you've got defensive midfielders like William Carvalho and, and Danilo, but then you've got this this fabulous front line of, of, of Cristiano, Yao Felix, and and then. Bernardo Silva or Diego Jota—is that—is that a fair assessment? Yep, spot on. That's that's right. Exactly. Uh, you know, exactly right. It w- was definitely a, a, you know the, the way Portugal kind of grinded themselves to to victory, didn't they? In Euro 2016, not not really <laughs> too pleasing on the eye, I'd say, if you weren't a Portugal fan. Uh, and uh, yeah, he ha- he has had to change. You know, like I say, he is a conservative coach. I think by nature. And you can argue, and I'd, I'd, I'd actually agree with this, that the very nature of international football makes it imperative uh, to have a, you know, a solid, very, uh, you know, strong defence. That you know, international football, international tournaments are often won really with, uh, you know, not by these flamboyant, fantastically, you know, easy on the eye teams to watch, but by teams who just, you know, remain uh, really solid and, uh, you know, just rely on their outstanding talent to nick a goal or two because you know when you're when you're playing against the best teams in the world you're not going to win three or four or five goals you're just going to try and win by one or two just look at uh, 2018 world cup i mean how many great games did france play in that in that world cup they were actually quite quite kind of stolid most of the times but they managed to to get the job done and ended up champions of the world and i think that's uh, fernando santos would definitely uh, you know, look to to recreate that uh, that kind of mindset. Just making Portugal first and foremost really difficult to beat, really difficult to break down. But he has got more attacking options, and he has, uh, yeah, he has changed. He has adjusted to that. Yeah. And you're and right, the major headache. change. He's got the yeah. headache in the, in the forward line. You know, you've got yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo is, is obviously the first choice and automatic selection. Um, yeah, Felix is in is in pretty good form at Atletico, so it sort of leaves the third sort of attacking spot open to Bernardo Silva or, or Diogo Jota. And Diogo Jota was was outstanding in those autumn games, wasn't he, against Croatia and yeah. Sweden? So is he is he ahead in the pecking order ahead of Bernardo Silva now? Very difficult to say, Gavin. Very difficult to say uh, because, uh, like you say, yeah, I think the only thing you can guarantee is Ronaldo will start, and then really out of the other three. I mean, Bernardo Silva, we, we, we can't really forget that he has struggled a little bit, both for club and country, this last uh, calendar year, Pat, or 2020, I should say. But uh, but he, after, I'd say, 2018 World Cup, he was possibly Portugal's uh, you know, best player, one of their best players, certainly. Maybe him and Cristiano and William Carvalho, I'd say. They, they were the three who really shone after the World Cup and throughout 2019 and in the Nations League, he's probably Portugal's best player. Uh, 
and you know he went off the boil a little bit and uh, Joao Felix and uh, even you could say about uh, Bruno Fernandes himself but uh, Joao Felix and, and Bruno Fernandes for sure they and even Bernardo this last year they their form for Portugal hasn't really replicated you know their best form for their for their side for their club side so Bernardo Silva who uh, in 2019, nobody would uh, even, you know, consider dropping him. Uh, was actually, you know, a lot of people are saying now he should perhaps be the one to drop out, and it should be Ronaldo, Joao Felix, and Diogo Jota up front. Uh, Fernando Santos himself is actually made Diogo Jota uh, the full guy. I remember against France that decisive game I was talking about for the Nations League. He started on the bench, you know, and that was. Right at the time he just joined Liverpool, he was scoring goals every week. He was he played that game against Croatia, where he was Portugal's man of the match. He then played against Sweden, the home game, when uh, Cristiano Ronaldo couldn't play that game because he had uh, COVID. And so uh, he played that game and he was man of the match again. So people said, no, Diogo Jota, he has to start. But uh, Fernando, Stan Fernando Santos didn't see it that way. And uh, he started that game on the bench against France, then came on in the second half. So, you know, it really is very difficult to choose the, the, the three at front. I think uh, at the moment it seems to be Ronaldo, Felix and Bernardo, who are, uh, you know, uh, Fernando Santos' first choice top three. But there's, of course, uh, Diogo Jota's got, got, unfortunately got injured. So... We're going to see how he comes back from, uh, you know, from that at Liverpool. But if he picks up a left off, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to make for, uh, you, know, a, you know, some some very uh, deep thinking, I suppose, by <laughs> Fernando Santos by the time the, the tournament comes around. Yeah, and and, and it's, it seems to me that the biggest problem he's got is at the other end of the pitch, um, in defence. We've got the the Euro 26, 2016 partnership of Pepe who's 38 this year um, Pep is 38 this year sorry and um and Joseph Fonte is um he turned 37 last year um in December so um they they, they must be reaching the end of the road and and they need a new 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 first choice they've got a new first choice center back in, in Ruben Diaz but they need a partner for him um and it, it, does it also mean that they're not going to try the three-four-three formation, which a lot of teams are playing, um, because they don't just don't have the centre backs, even though the full backs probably better suited to a sort of wing back role. But that that seems to be his biggest biggest headache. Yeah, I think that's a, a bit too radical for uh, a bit too much of a radical change for Fernando Santos. A lot of people have been calling for you know that that uh, you know three-four-three formation with wing backs, because like you say, Portugal's. They've got problems at centre back, but uh, in terms of fullbacks, they've got they've got really uh, you know a, a set of players who uh, seem absolutely ideal for that kind of role. You know, uh, Joao Cancelo is playing that kind of uh, he almost seems to be playing as a win back for Manchester City. You know, really attacking there. Uh, got of course Ricardo Pereira at Leicester, who also very attacking. Right back, who a lot of people are saying one of the best players in the in the English Premier League last couple of years, uh, and of course you've got Rafael Guerreiro on the other side, who for Borussia Dortmund often plays further up the pitch himself. You know, even as a, a, as a left-sided midfielder. 
So, so that is definitely an option. But he's been asked about this once or twice, and he hasn't really committed himself to to making this change. Uh, you know, such a radical change. And I very much doubt that Fernando Santos will be uh, considering this because not many games between now and the tournament itself. So yeah, it will be a four-man defence. And yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. That is really the Achilles heel of Portugal at the moment, centre-back. You know, that's where the, the potential weakness of the team lies. Uh, Pep, you know, is still a stalwart. He's still in the, the first game, I remember, against France. He was absolutely outstanding in Paris uh, in, in the Nations League game last autumn. Uh, but he missed the second game and he missed it through injury and he's missed quite a lot of games uh, through injury for Porto. He's back at Porto now, uh, which is just, uh, you, you have to think it's just inevitable. You know, it's his, it's his age, not really serious injuries, but quite a series of injuries. So I think he had an ankle problem, then he had a, a leg muscle problem, then, uh, then he got a bang to the head or something, you know, but just with... The fact, like you say, you know, you look at age, centre-backs can usually go on a bit a bit longer. But, you know, 38 years old, he really is nearing the end of his career. So it would be quite dangerous, I think, for Portugal to absolutely rely on him. He, If he is fit, he will be uh, first choice, you know, alongside Ruben Diaz. That will be the centre-back partnership. But, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a risky game for Portugal because I'm not quite sure if you can rely for Pep. Mm. If Portugal go deep in the tournament, you know, playing five or six games, uh, you know, it's it's quite difficult to see Pep, you know, being fit for, for all of those. Uh, as far as possible replacements go or possible alternatives, uh, yeah, as you'll say, Font, like you said, you know, another another veteran. And uh, he, again, you know, the game against France, the second game against France here, he came in for Pep and he was, to be honest, very very uh he gave a very poor performance in that game uh he looks like perhaps it's not quite the player he was four years ago uh a few young alternatives at, at porto actually interestingly that the guy who's come in for pep at porto the ogle late uh he looks a very good prospect really good prospect uh, you know really tall center back uh reads the game really well quite a cultured player good on the ball very good at uh, bringing it forward, passing it. So, but a little bit green still. I think he's 21, 22, and he's only played, I, should, I wouldn't have thought he's played more than 20 games, senior games for Porto. So, uh, you know, he's very well thought of, but again, perhaps uh, will be a little bit green to just to be starting for Portugal. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's why, you know, that's one position which is definitely, you know, something which. Uh, could cause a, a bit of a headache for Portugal, but it, but it's pretty settled in midfield though, with um, with Danilo and, and William Carvalho as the t- the two sort of defensive pivots in, in there, and and there are other options on there, Yamutinho from yeah. the, from the bench. Are there are there any other players that that he's got up his sleeve that he can he can throw into a game because it's um the, all the all the jokers seem to be on the pitch already. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, you know there are a few who are beginning to make. A bit of a splash. Uh, there's, I suppose, looking for forward players as well. If you know things are, aren't going well for Portugal and they've got, they, they have to try a breakthrough or they have to grab a goal. Uh, we've we, we've got to talk really about Rafael Leão at yeah. uh, at Milan, yeah. who's you know having a terrific season at, at Milan. You know they're flying high. 
there and he's uh, pretty much a, an, aut uh, an automatic starter, I think, or at least plays the vast majority of their games. So, you know, and he's, uh, he's very young still. I think he's 21. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, playing in Syria uh, for the, you know, one of the main teams, doing very well. So it's definitely an alternative, although I have to say he hasn't really featured at all for Portugal, not even in squads. And so it will be a bit of a late decision if, uh, if Fernando Santos decides to bring him in. But the way he's playing, you know, you have to say that he merits an opportunity. You've got also, I don't think you can ignore Andre Silva, who's, uh, you know, the, the centre forward who was really, a lot was expected of him when he left Porto, hasn't really kicked on, hasn't really, uh, you know, certainly the first few years abroad. He, he struggled a little bit to impose his game. He's now settled in Germany, Eintracht uh, Frankfurt, and he's doing very well there. He's, uh, you know, I think he's one of the top scorers in Germany this season. And he's much more of a kind of traditional number nine. So he's, he, he probably hasn't got the, the talent or even the quality, you could say, of, of uh, you know, Joao Felix or Diogo Jota or Bernardo Silva. But he does offer something different for Portugal, you know, a bit more of a, a kind of target man, centre forward. And also a player who has combined very well with Cristiano Ronaldo whenever they've played together. They seem to have a very good understanding. So I think he, you know, we can't write him off either at all. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, I suppose another young player who it would depend a lot how things go for him at his club side, which is uh, Francisco Trincao, who's at uh, Barcelona. Yeah. And again, very young player, but, you know, just the fact that he's at Barcelona and uh, he's playing quite a lot. You know, I don't think he's an automatic starter, but he's seeing quite a lot of minutes. And, you know, when you're playing for a club of that calibre, Again, you, you, you've got to be considered, and he has been, he, unlike uh, Rafael Leal, he has been brought in by, uh, Francis, by uh, Fernando Santos to the squad, and he's got a few minutes, you know, he's played a few games, and uh, he's looked quite good, uh, you know, especially, the, I remember the very last game, the away game against Croatia, uh, when Portugal, were, uh, they played a very poor first half, he came on in the second half, Portugal pecked up a lot, ended up winning that game and uh, you know he was excellent in that game uh, Francisco uh, Trincao so yeah, yeah he also could be a bit of a joker in the pack Yeah there, there, there does seem to be uh, a lot of options for Fernando Santos um, I want to talk a little bit more about why he's got so many options of players playing across Europe you mentioned you know, the Bundesliga as well as the, you know, the Premier League and, and Serie A um, first we'll take a short break right I'm back with Tom um, we're talking Portugal um, Tom uh, we talked uh, about the incredible number of Portuguese players at the top level of club football around Europe. Um, the other side of the coin is um, the impact that those players moving abroad is having on, on the domestic league. Um, we talked um, uh, about that earlier. And, and the Portugal squad at Euro 2004, when, when Portugal hosted the tournament, had 16 players. Um, based with Portuguese clubs. Um, by the 2018 World Cup, that figure dropped to six. Um, a Portuguese club finance is really in such a poor state that there has to be this constant stream of players being sold overseas. Uh, I think the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be the case. It doesn't really matter uh, what they do in terms of uh, you know, getting 
these huge transfer windfalls, which seems just to just to be almost a constant season after season. Uh, the finances never seem to really improve, and uh, you always hear about clubs, you know, struggling to, to make ends meet, even the biggest clubs in Portugal. And the only way they can do it is by selling, you know, some of their tremendously talented young players. And so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, that has had a knock-on effect in the quality of football, I would say, in, in the Portuguese domestic league and, uh, you know, the quality of the traditional big three, which was, uh, you know, Porto, Benfica and Sporting. They, you can even see really in recent seasons, their showings in European competition uh, has really kind of nosedived a little bit. And, you know, after some tremendous successes in the, in the last two uh, decades, I'd say, of course, Porto, especially in the, in the early 2000s, course they won the Champions League in 2004 they also won the the UEFA Cup the last UEFA Cup uh, in 2003 and then they won the Europa League uh, in 2011 uh, Benfica got to the final a couple of times uh, Braga even got to the final and Sporting got to the final so uh, that that was all that all seems like quite a long time ago now because you can't really see uh, Portuguese clubs making much of a, an impact in, in, in the European competitions now. Because, uh, yeah, because really, as soon as a player shows promise, you know, big promise, uh, you, you've got the bigger clubs circling around and, and they get sold more, more often than not. Unfortunately, I think for the biggest Portuguese clubs and for fans of, you know, these Portuguese teams, this seems to be, this trend just seems to be getting, uh, you know, more and more entrenched and players seem to be getting sold younger and younger. Uh, you know, Fernandes, uh, Bruno Fernandes was a bit of an outlier in that he was 26, 27 uh, when he went from sporting to, to Manchester United. Uh, because, you know, very often, I mean, just look at Joao Felix. I think he... He wasn't even 20 when he was sold from Benfica to, uh, you know, to Atletico Madrid. And you have a look at uh, just other recent examples. Uh, so many of them, you know, uh, Renato Sanchez. A lot of these players, um, like we just mentioned a while ago, uh, Francisco Trincao, really as soon as they start making a name for themselves, uh, you know, a big club comes in for them. I, I think that's also a little bit, Portuguese clubs being a victim of their own success because a lot of these players have proven that they can really cut it in the biggest leagues and for the biggest teams. And yeah. so obviously it's, uh, you know, it's, that makes these big clubs and these big teams more willing to, uh, to take a chance on them and to pay big for them. And Portuguese clubs really are not in a position to refuse big offers. And that, that's just from the club's point of view. And the, the player himself, of course, I think it's even harder probably to, uh, you know, to, to refuse these kinds of offers. Uh, sometimes people criticise these players and criticise their agents. And say, you know, obviously for the good of their career, it would probably be better. I think Renato Sanchez is a, you know, a case of point. It'd probably be better stick around at Benfica for two or three years, you know, play Champions League football every, every year, even, even if it's not for a team that's going, to, that's going to win the competition, but at least you're playing in it and uh, you're playing every week and you're improving. And then when you're a bit more mature, make the move then. But that's easier to say, but these players, you know, the kind of money they're offered when they yeah. switch, it's just 
absolutely no comparison. I, I always use the example, Nani, when he left sporting for Manchester United, his wages increased 17-fold. You know, oh. he's getting paid 17 <laughs> times more at Manchester. And, of course, he was one of the least paid players, for sure, uh, at Manchester United at that time. Yeah. So, you know, you, how, how can you say to a player there, uh, Joao Felix, when he left Benfica, I think he was, he'd been offered a new contract, which was, I think, €2 million Euros a year, you know, which sounds like a lot of money. Of course it is <laughs> for most of us. But uh, when he moved to Atletico Madrid, I think the contract was six million a year before bonuses with a, I think it's a six or seven year contract. So, you know, how, how can you refuse that? Yeah. You just can't refuse yeah. it, can you? So, so <clears throat> yeah, unfortunately, finances dictate that. I think this is a trend that will be certainly continuing for the for the near future it's not just players who are being exported is it as well because you've got portuguese coaches working all over europe and, and further afield as well george george jorge uh, george jesus um i mean he's back at, at lisbon in lisbon now at benfica um not, not exactly setting the world alight there but he had that groundbreaking success didn't he with flamengo in brazil and you've got abel ferreira now in brazil having success and with palmeiras um is, is there a a Portuguese coaching philosophy that clubs are buying into, or is it, is it more a case that some some people and some coaches are, are sort of following in the slipstream of the likes of Jesus and and Jose Mourinho in Europe? Yeah, I think it's the, it's two things. You know, it's the coaches and young prospective coaches look at the success of Jose Mourinho, and uh, you know, and then <clears throat> later on, Andre Villas Boas and managers like this, Leonardo Jardim and uh, Paulo Fonseca, you can say, and. You know they can see that this is a, uh, you know this is a route. This is a a route to, to fame and fortune, I suppose you can say. And you know if, if they're ambitious, they can really make a, a huge name for themselves. It's, it's interesting. Also, a lot of these coaches weren't really big players, uh, and so uh, you know you don't have to be a you know world class player to to become a huge you know a huge player in the, in in the world game. So, uh, so yeah, it's been that they definitely were kind of standard bearers, as Jose Mourinho, more than anyone, of course. And yeah, yeah it has yeah. been a, it has been definitely a a trend. Which and, and it's another thing, of course, where success breeds success. It's a, it's a two way thing because clubs from all over the world they see these Portuguese coaches, and most of them, uh, you know, or a lot of them have been very successful, and some of them have been incredibly successful. So. George Jesus went to Flamengo. They had their most uh, successful season for three decades, about won the Copa uh, Libertadores for only the second time in their history. Uh, last time was when they had the Zico and that uh, team in the 80s. So that kind of, you know, that tells you how long they've been in the doldrums. And he, he won that and then he won practically everything domestically. And he, uh, and uh, he even, you know, he even gave Liverpool quite a good game, didn't he, in the, in the World Club That's right, yeah. uh, final. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it was very interesting because as soon as that happened, okay, George Jesus, I think when he was still, still there, actually, still in Brazil, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Josualdo Ferreira, Ferreira uh, former Porto coach, um, who was the other one, uh, I can't remember, uh, Sao Pinto more recently, Right. There was three yeah. or four, I can't remember all of them, but three or four, uh, you know, Brazilian clubs, big Brazilian clubs, 
uh, recruited Portuguese coaches. And like you say, now uh, Abel Ferreira has been the most recent one and he's also, uh, at least so far, he's, he's been very successful at Palmeiras. So, uh, so yeah, you know, it's a, it's, it's a trend, uh, just like Portuguese players. You know, it's, it's incredible to think about it, really. You know, this, this country of, of 10 million people has really been a hotbed of Portuguese football talent uh, in terms of players now for, yeah. uh, for a number of years. And now the same thing's happening with the coaches. Yeah, but now we, we can't talk about yeah the, the market for football talent in Portugal uh, without mentioning George Mendes, uh, Mourinho's agent, agent to, to many people. Um, the man who was recently bizarrely named agent of the century um, by an awards uh, ceremony in, in Dubai. I won't, I won't uh, credit them, um, but it's an event that, that Mendes is involved with every year and somehow Ronaldo wins awards every year, Ronaldo being a probably Mendes's highest profile client. Um, but I mean, it's a serious thing though, isn't it? Because almost the entire Portugal squad is represented by Mendes and his Gestifuti agency. Um, that's inevitably led to suspicions that his, his clients are gaining sort of favorable treatment in the national team. Are, are, are people right to be suspicious of Mendes and, and suspect that he has influence on, on who makes the Portugal squad? Oh, that is a real opening a can of worms. Uh, yeah, this theory is, uh, you know, something which does the rounds uh, often here in Portugal. Uh, first of all, uh, Fernando Santos, of course, I suppose, who's the, the person who could most directly uh, answer this question. He himself has been asked this question and he insists that it has no bearing at all on who he selects. Uh, he even, I remember when he was asked this question a, f a few months ago, he, he said, I don't even know who the, uh, who the agents are or some of my players, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, that just doesn't concern me. So, and I think, you know, he's, he's certainly viewed and you have to take that as face value. He seems, an, you know, a very honest and decent man. Uh, Fernando Santos, I wouldn't expect him to, to lie brazenly about that. Uh, I do think, Perhaps the influence, there is an influence there, but perhaps in more subtle ways where in such as um, if you are a George Mendes player, you have much more uh, likelihood or a much higher chance of being uh, transferred to a high profile club or a club you know, where you'll get noticed more. And so from, from that point of view, you know, certainly, uh, also, basically, you know, if you're a very uh, talented young Portuguese footballer, the chances are that, uh, you know, George Mendes and his Jesse Foot agents, agency have, uh, have already got, uh, you know, seen you and scouted you and approached you and probably, you know, got you on their books. And so uh, he really has dominated the... Um, you know, the transfer market in terms of young Portuguese players or, or young and not so young, all top Portuguese players. He himself would argue, well, I've done this, you know, out of hard work. I've got my network of contacts. Uh, you know, obviously I have the advantage there, whereas I can get players into the biggest clubs in the world. But this has happened because of all the hard work I've been doing since I've become an agent. Other people think it's far too, uh, you know, it's just too much. He's got too much of a monopoly. And 
a lot of times, of course, the whole the whole business, of course, of football agents is is really viewed as a bit of a shady business, isn't it? Not much transparency, mm. and quite often he gets accused. Uh, George Mendes gets accused of uh, what they call in Portuguese the Mendes Carousel, which is he's got about four or five or six clubs, which is really heavily involved in. You know, we can think of Wolves, uh, Valencia. Uh, Atletico Madrid uh, here in Portugal, I suppose Benfica, uh, more than more than the other two uh, big clubs, and a lot of times you see players just circulating between these clubs, and of course, every time there's a transfer, he gets a commission on that. So some people ask, well, you know, is is he really looking after the player's career, or is he just trying to you know move them on as many times as possible to uh, you know to make money? So. Yeah, that is a bit of a controversial figure, uh, quite a controversial figure, I'd say. There are people in Portugal, and a lot of people who, who admire him, you know, and say he's got to where he is off, you know, by being intelligent, by being smart, by working hard. Uh, other people who perhaps not quite so generous in their appraisal of him. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and as far as the national team goes, yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, it's an argument which goes on and on. Uh, I guess there's, there's an element of, the, of chicken and egg with it in the sense that if, if, if Mendes wasn't securing sort of big transfers for clients like, say, Diego Jota or Pedro Neto to Wolves and then Liverpool, then you know, they wouldn't be getting the chance to play in European club competition in the way that you know, they, they would have done if they, if they stayed in Portugal. Um, so they're increasing oh. their chances of international selection. So they're, so they're, the, the national teams benefit from that, but then Mendes is also benefiting enormously from his cut of these deals, isn't he? So it's it's a sort of he's he's benefiting, but then he would argue that that they, these players are benefiting as well from their careers. Yeah, and, and they're freeing up, they're freeing up places at home for for youngsters to come through. So this whole this whole carousel, as you call, yeah, you know, as you say, is, is is sort of just carries on. No doubt about it. And there are people here in Portugal, a lot of people who say George Mendes has been brilliant for Portuguese football. You know, he's been superb. He's got, you know, if it wasn't for him, perhaps these top players, uh, you know, wouldn't be in his, in his clubs, in his, top, in his top clubs. And then they wouldn't, you know, if it have such a high profile, perhaps they wouldn't improve so much as players. Perhaps, uh, you know, same with coaches. And so, <clears throat> and so yeah, you, you know, it's, it's not all one way. It's not people saying, oh, you know, what a bad influence he is and, and you know, isn't you know, why has he got so much? Uh, why does he have so much say? You know, who is he? He's only an agent. Uh, you know, there are people who recognise, I think, or acknowledge that, uh, or or can argue that is actually you know, a, it's a good thing for Portuguese football that there's such a, a powerful agent. I think that I suppose the only problem is, uh, don't know if it's out of jealousy or maybe out of. Uh, you know, just wanting to make it a bit more of a, a level playing field. It just seemed to be that he is just so dominant and, you know, he's got so much power that he kind of, uh, you know, perhaps even even without wanting to, maybe he can uh, kind of, you know, influence things a bit too much. What's, what's the general feeling in the country about the Euros coming up in terms of, we talked about how exciting this team could be. Um, Will the flags be out straight away at the start of the tournament? Or will it be more of a case of people warming to the team as the as the tournament progresses and and, and they progress through the through the matches? Yeah, well, I think they're going to have to. Portuguese fans are going to have to be 
out from the start really when you look at that group <laughs> it's uh you know such an exciting group in some ways but it's it's a bit of a shame i was i was saying to you know in chat, chatting to some people here and some fellow journalists and they say even though it would hurt portuguese chances it's a little bit of a shame that this this isn't in the old format where only two teams qualify yeah. because imagine that you know this group with uh, germany france portugal and Hungary, who of course will be playing in their home venue, and who yeah. think yeah. to, Hung- you know, Hungary, Hungary in Budapest, Germany in yeah. Munich, and then yeah. France. I mean, that's quite. And then the world champions, yeah. So yeah, so it's it's a, it's a massive task for Portugal. So, uh, and of course it could, uh, it could all go very wrong very quickly. You know, <laughs> with uh, such. Uh, having said that, Portugal historically they tend to do better. I think this is also. Going back to their struggles in in qualifications, they they tend to play better the better the opposition. So that could actually be good for Portugal. You know the fact that they're really going to have to be on it right from right from the get go. And uh, yeah, I think you know I suppose a lot about this tournament and how successful this tournament is and how much excitement it generates. I suppose of course a lot will depend on on the pandemic right? and if there's you know if that's under control and if fans are uh are allowed back in the tournament in the stadiums that will yeah you know that would, that would just make it completely different won't it and it will and if that is the case uh i think it, you know we can look forward to an absolutely tremendous uh tremendous tournament and from portugal's point of view or from the point of view of that group itself uh wow you know it should just be really exciting and i and i hope that we will be back in the stadium soon tom um, it would be great to catch up with you back in Lisbon um, for a glass of, of vino verde and, and some uh, bacalao <laughs> and, and, and all the things I've missing from Portugal. Um, it's been uh, great talking to you and, um, and let's, let's meet up soon. Thanks ever so much. Yeah, okay, good stuff. Good stuff, Gavin. Good talking to you too. And I'll take you up on that offer. Uh, <laughs> maybe start it off with a little glass of port as an aperitif. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, And you want to find out more, there's a new podcast with a different journalist from every single country competing in this summer's European Championship. You can find them all wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow this show so you know whenever I release a new episode. And you can find out more great sports podcasts on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Just head to sport-social.co.uk. Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip. Follow and subscribe now so you never miss an episode. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.